0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, excellent episode today with SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. Bankless listeners, a few things to listen for as we go through this episode. Number one, we cover how Sam built a $30 billion crypto exchange. In less than three years. Simply incredible. Number two, what FTX will actually look like in the future is vision for things. Number three, what the FTX Super Bowl ad did for crypto, what it did for FTX as well. Interesting story there. Uh, Number four, and finally, is Sam on team DeFi or does he plan to position FTX as a competitor? David, really cool episode today. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I think uh, people in the crypto Twitter sphere will think that this episode is going to be spicy just because. It would appear, at least at the cursory level, that FTX and the Bankless thesis are kind of misaligned. But I think once you get SBF and and both Ryan and I into the same room, all of those things kind of disappear. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Sam and kind of just getting to peek under the hood is really what motivates him to build such gargantuan institutions in the world of crypto and how we are actually aligned on some of our fundamental principles about how there are these islands of centralization or pockets of centralization that decentralized crypto rails can allow the navigation between, which I think is just another interpretation of the DeFi mullet. And so I think we definitely align there as well as some other things. And in addition to talking about the FTX ad, uh, we also asked Sam's opinion on the Coinbase ad. It was more than just a conversation of two ads. It was more about just like, what did each ad do for the industry as a whole? So just a small snippet of topics that we talked about in this podcast.
0: Guys, and the reason we're having these conversations with the big crypto exchanges of the world, uh, we think of them as the banks of the future, the crypto banks of the is because these are people who are shaping, like it or not, they are shaping the industry. And Brian Armstrong, we had that conversation in October, November of last year. Go back and listen to that one for another. Now we have SBF. I think we'll have CZ from Binance on in time. We really want to understand their takes on the world and their value systems. And so we definitely get into that with SBF. Why is he here? Does he care about decentralization? Is he worried that the crypto exchanges of the world might lead to a more centralized future and become the same thing that we're leaving? These are questions we asked SBF today. And why you should tune into this is because people like SBF are helping to shape the future. It's important that we hear what he has to say and know how he thinks. Guys, we are going to get right to the conversation. But before we do, we want to tell you about these fantastic tools for going bankless from the following sponsors.
1: The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 Internet, with built-in privacy and ad blocking to keep you in charge of your digital footprint. And inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave Wallet, the first secure crypto wallet built natively inside of a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy, But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. The Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is built natively inside the Brave browser. No extension required, which gives the Brave Wallet an extra level of security versus other wallets. With the Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap your crypto assets, and you can even manage your NFTs and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to the Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a unique grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The Gemini Exchange has been my exchange of choice ever since I got into crypto. I use Gemini to both buy the dips and also manage my regular automatic monthly purchases of my preferred crypto asset. On Gemini, you'll find over 50 different cryptos, including many of the top DeFi and Metaverse tokens like YFI and Axie Infinity. Using Gemini Earn, you can earn yield on your various cryptos, including 8% on the GUSD stablecoin. Using the Gemini credit card, you can earn crypto rewards on every purchase you make, and your crypto rewards immediately lands in your Gemini account the instant you swipe your Gemini credit card. Gemini is available in all 50 states and more than 50 countries worldwide. So if you're looking to upgrade your crypto exchange, sign up at Gemini with gemini.com slash gobankless and get $15 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days that's gemini.com slash go
0: bankless bankless nation we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest sam bankman fried or spf as most of you know him he's the founder and ceo of ftx ftx has got to be the fastest growing cryptocurrency exchange in the world at least uh it feels that way uh he also manages assets through alameda uh research which is a quant trading firm that he founded in 2017 always a busy guy a brilliant trader Now he's the leader of one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. So he's definitely someone to pay attention to. And SBF, it's great to have you on Bankless. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me. Uh, We heard you recently celebrated your 30th birthday. So uh, also, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad uh, you're choosing to spend some time early in your 30s with the Bankless community. (laughs) We're grateful for that. (laughs) We're excited about that.
2: Nothing else I'd rather do.
0: How's it feel to be 30 and to have um, accomplished so much in crypto?
2: You know, I mean, in many ways, it, it honestly doesn't feel that that different than 29. It's been a wild few years, and I think it's been particularly interesting just sort of seeing, you know, the difference between what, what sort of like a standard trajectory is and then what, what happens if you really sort of, you know, put your feet on the gas pedal a little bit and, and sort of don't assume that anything is impossible until proven otherwise.
0: Well, that, it feels like you've had your foot on the gas pedal uh, ever since you joined crypto. And that's actually where we want to start the story here uh, with you, SBF, is you somehow managed. I was looking back at, at when FTX was founded, and it was 2019, May 2019, less than three years ago, which is incredible. You are now a top three crypto exchange, and you've built all of this in the last three years. How did you do it? Going back to what you just said is just you haven't taking your foot off the gas pedal, but like, how is this even possible?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a piece of it, but it, it's not all of it. And, you know, I, I think other things that, that really contributed to this, I, I mean, one of them is just like taking a step back and, and saying, all right, like what's the right thing to build in the first place? Like, where is there a real need and, you know, sort of a combination of like, there's a lot of demand and not enough supply of some products you know, I, I think we felt like the exchange space was one of those spaces, you know, it's a place where there would, they, they really are one of the core pieces of infrastructure in the crypto ecosystem. And, you know, the exchanges circa 2018, they just weren't that good. And, and I, I think we sort of looked at that and like, all right, there's a big opportunity here to really jump in. Uh, and that that if we do like, you know, and if we build a really great product, you know, we, we could pretty quickly become a pretty big Big piece of the space if sort of everything goes goes exactly right, and, and, and I think that like yeah, choosing the right place to come in was one piece of it, and then you know I and it's you know feel a little silly saying this, but like building a great product is a thing that that I feel like a lot of people legitimately sort of fail to emphasize nearly enough, and uh, but 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 obviously it's incredibly important.
1: Sam, I mean, you made it build, the creation of FTX just look easy. It, from like the outside in at the at the cursory level glance, it just kind of looks like FTX just uh, was built out and manifested basically perfectly according to plan. And I remember coming being a, a person coming in through the class of 2017 crypto, watching people comment on the rise of Binance and how Binance was this underdog exchange that penetrated into a market that seemed completely saturated and seemed unpenetrable. And that was in 2017, 2018. And then FTX did it even more so in 2019. Was it as easy as it looked
2: from the outside? Yes and no. There were a lot of details. I I mean, there's just a lot of specific things to get right and and a lot of sort of deep dives into those and, you know, understanding everything from, you know, licensing regulatory compliance to customer support, how to manage a team that's growing, payments, you know, fiat integrations, like there's a bunch of pieces of it. But I, I think what I would say is like, none of these pieces have felt sort of insurmountable. And so I think there is a sense in which like it was at least close, at, at least close to a sort of like straightforward of a high-level pathway available as it looked like if you executed really well. You know, the devil's in the details there. But I do think that there was just a straightforward opportunity.
1: Tell us what you saw when you saw that opportunity. Is FTX successful because it capitalized on a specific niche? Or what did FDX do well that other exchanges left on the table?
2: Yeah, I think that, like, there's a lot of different pieces of this. And I do think a lot of this traces back in the end to, like, sort of, we we tried hard and built a good product. And weirdly enough, that sort of set us apart from a number of other products in the space. Um, But but more specifically, like, margin models are one of these, right? Like, you know, anytime you have futures or derivatives or, or leverage, you have to figure out, like, you know, how do you liquidate people? How'd you margin call? And those were just like absolute shit shows in 2018 for most exchanges. They're losing a million dollars a day to having incompetent margin models. They just like let people put on a position with way too much leverage, you know, not nearly enough collateral, and then wait to margin call for too long. And by the time they got around to it, it was too late. And um, you know, a position was already underwater. And then they, you know, claw that back from whoever made money that weekend. And, and that, that's not a good system. And so one piece of it was just cleaning that up a lot and thinking about, look, like, how do the people, you know, first of all, like, how do people do this in the rest of the world? And, and what are the right models for this? How, what's the right way to think about this? So I think that that was like, that was one piece of this. And that, that's something that we really focused on a lot. You know, another piece of this was thinking about what, like, I guess cross-margining, maybe I should add as well, is sort of another interesting piece of that, you know, which is basically ha- instead of having a ton of different completely independent margin, you know, for, for each different product on the exchange, which becomes a mess really quickly, just having, you know, one wallet where you deposit whatever you want. Um, So that was sort of another important piece of this. Other things, I guess, like, um, you know, thinking about like how can we help build a product that like just like works the way people are expecting it to. And I think especially on whenever something goes weird or wrong, like whenever, whenever wacky things happen is always when, you know, everything breaks and, and, and customers get frustrated. What happens when there's a fork, what you do with the futures on the underlying, what happens if there are network halts, Um, you know, and what happens if teachers start going to a really big discount and having a plan for those cases that sort of like was reasonable and fair to people was yeah. was sort of another thing we thought about you know and then i think the last thing that i'll say is on the regulatory side and this has become an increasingly big deal over time you know we've been thinking about you know from 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 sort of like you know first principles almost like what is the right you know what's the right way to think about the regulation for a crypto exchange and I think this is a really, really hard problem at this point, but it's not an unsolvable one. And I think the world is to some extent divided up between people who have sort of like, you know, are trying half-heartedly on this, people who have given up, people, like it, it's, there's a lot of messes here. But I think that like, this is a thing on which you can figure out what the right thing to do is and do it if you try hard enough. And that's another thing that we've really been been emphasizing a lot. So I think, I don't know, those were like some things that I guess we did differently than you know, many of our competitors, but, but I think a lot of this was just like trying to have consistently good execution across the board.
0: You guys have certainly had that. You know, I can't help but wonder as we look back through the other exchange of founders throughout history is like every two to three years, a new exchange seems to come along. So we had Brian Armstrong launch, you know, Coinbase with his co-founders 2012. Uh, the Winklevoss twins 2014 with Gemini. And then you had 2017 was CZ and Binance. 2019 was FTX and what you just launched, SBF. So it feels like we're due for another, you know, crypto exchange founder. Do you think that there's someone out there who could come and give you guys a run for your money? Is this just the trajectory of things or do you think things have solidified? You have the big players now and that's that's all there's going to be for the foreseeable future.
2: I don't expect there to be another traditional crypto exchange coming out anytime soon, which is going to become a big player. I think that like there's a lot of appetite a few years ago for new players in the space. I just don't think there's nearly as much appetite now. That being said, I think there are going to be new players in the space which are sort of tangential to that. I think you know, looking at players like PayPal, right, which are they're not crypto exchanges, but they're mass retail products that are starting to integrate crypto as a front end. And I think we're going to see more and more people like that start to dip their toes in the space and play, play at least some role in it.
1: Sam, I want to zoom all the way back out and get down to some of the basic questions in here. Everyone who comes into crypto, I think comes into crypto for their own specific reasons. And so I want to pick your brain as to, as to why you're in crypto. So when, when you look at crypto, why are you here? Like, why did you start Alameda? Why did you start FTX? What about this industry interests you?
2: Yeah, well, it's, you know, as for why I got here in the first place, you know, originally I was trading and I, I just saw arbitrage opportunities. You know, I looked around at the space and there was there were billions of dollars a day of volume trading globally in crypto. That's a lot of volume. The, the, the spreads were just absolutely ludicrous given that you saw 1% spreads all over the place, occasionally 5 or 10% spreads. And so originally got involved just trading, doing arbitrage on those. Um, and, and I think when I got involved, I basically had no idea why crypto would be useful for the world. I just sort of thought, look, this is a thing you can trade these numbers. You know, I'm, I'm used to seeing tickers trading up prices, and 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 that that was sort of how how I initially thought of it. And I think it wasn't until I'd been in the crypto ecosystem for a while that I started to understand why it existed in the first place. And I think a big piece of this is thinking about like, well, like what's the alternative, and what what's it what's it replacing, what's it doing in the world? You know, it's one thing you can do is be a payments vehicle, you know, vehicle method, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, as I got more involved in the crypto ecosystem, um, I started to have to, among other things, like send money to and from exchanges, you know, just because, like, I was trading on them, right? So I had to, like, wire money to Coinbase. And and as I was doing arbitrage, as I was, like, just trying to make money doing crypto ARBs, not, nothing sort of more complicated than that, it weirdly, kind of quickly became clear that the hardest part of that job was actually going to be the fiat part that that was going to be harder to like send the wire transfers necessary in order to trade crypto than it was going to be to do the actual crypto trading and that was sort of the point at which i started to think like oh wow that's that's pretty weird like that shouldn't be the hard part of what i'm doing right now that should just be an afterthought but it was the hard part and it started getting me thinking like boy there's there's something wrong with that system right? If like, I'm trying to trade crypto and fiat is still the hardest part of that. And, you know, we're spending probably five man hours in banks, physically branches, banks, like sitting there talking to tellers and stuff in order to do the wires that we need. We, we're, you know, a three month old startup with like 12 people. So that that was like a big part of the task. And, um, and, and I think it's like a really compelling example to me of like, you know, something here is just not working smoothly.
0: What was it that wasn't working smoothly to you that you identified? Was it kind of the existing banking system, would you say? Or was this just an opportunity in, in crypto that you felt like was unfulfilled and needed some fulfilling?
2: It's an interesting question. And I think there's a little bit
0: of both, frankly. Um, I don't think it was only
2: one or the other. And I do think that like both the existing systems, like like part of this was just like, banks were not excited to support cryptocurrencies, right? And they weren't excited to support crypto companies. And, you know, that meant that it was pretty messy. So that was definitely a piece of this. But I think another piece of this, frankly, was that, uh, you know, they were, even when we started looking outside just the raw crypto ecosystem, it still seemed like a mess. And, you know, it was, a mess. Even when we were trying to do payroll, like that was not nearly as easy as it should have been. And and to be clear, that that is not something that should be super hard. Like that should be like just about the easiest thing, you know, that that you can do. Everything that we tried to do uh, in fiat was difficult. And if you tried to cross border, it got so much harder. Anytime you're trying to send from one country to another, sort of optimistically, it would cost you a percent and it would take like two days. That was like the best case scenario. And you have to get pretty lucky for that to happen.
0: There's often like this, um, I guess this list of reasons that people join crypto, right? And it, I think this is um, distilled down probably, it's too reductionist, but it is still down to these three things. Money, you're either here for the money, you're here for the tech, or you're here for the movement, you know, the values of the thing. Read a recent Forbes article with you, SBF, and uh, a few quotes from that, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on. Bank McFried is no crypto evangelist he's a mercenary dedicated to making as much money as possible. He doesn't really care how, so he can give it away. He doesn't really know to whom or when. We'll get to that giving it away part in a little bit. The writer goes on, asked if he would abandon crypto if he thought he could pile up more money doing something else, say trading orange juice futures. He doesn't even pause. I would, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I thought that was a really illuminating part of the article. And I'm curious if that kind of explains a little bit why you're here. I think what you've described so far about your journey in crypto is like the entrepreneur's journey. It's like I saw a problem in the market that wasn't getting fixed. And so I decided I could do a better job of fixing it. And there was this massive market opportunity. So I'm here to fix it, right? Maybe that's not quite the money reason why you're in crypto. It's sort of like you saw a need and sort of the entrepreneur's reason you're in crypto. But I'm wondering if that is true. If you saw a need in the orange juice futures market and there was a big market opportunity there, could you have been there instead? Is there anything particular about crypto's value system that compels you? Or is it really about the entrepreneur's journey and kind of the money side of the equation?
2: You know, it's complicated. And I mean, certainly at the beginning, right, when I was first getting involved, there's nothing crypto-specific about what I was thinking. I didn't really know what crypto was even. And so I think certainly from, you know, at the beginning, absolutely could have ended up in a different place. You know, I think today, like, if I see, you know, a good opportunity somewhere, I want to be, you know, able to take advantage of that, you know, whatever space that's in. And so that's that's definitely true as well. Now, I will also say that, like, it was, I think, I, there are really great things to be doing in crypto that I'm really excited about. And I'm not super tempted to be giving those up. And I think that's true from sort of a monetization perspective, but I also think that that's just true from, you know, the sort of impact that I can have on the world perspective. And I think that's something that I've gotten a lot more excited about in crypto over time is the, the opportunity to, to use it to have, to have impact on the world. And I think that like that, that, again, I don't think that's something that I was like super attentive to when I first got involved in the space. I think that's something which, you know, much more has sort of come over time for me as I've explored things more, um, but, but I do think that I feel pretty compelled uh, by its, its use case now in a way that that wasn't obvious to me at the beginning um, and that I want to see through. And, and, and I think this is from the perspective of like disintermediating financial markets. I think it's from the perspective of, you know, allowing international monetary transfers to work reasonably um, and a bunch of other things.
1: Sam, there's this term that I've learned recently that I've been using more and more because it it seems to describe the reasons as to why so many people feel compelled to join crypto regardless, and that that term is uh, being nerd sniped, as in crypto has just like this insane amount of surface area of problems to be solved. And while perhaps you didn't come into crypto because of the, like the ethos alignment, you just came in here uh, because there was this arbitrage opportunity and then there was this problem that you discovered. Crypto eventually pulls in all people that are obsessed with like problems or puzzles and liked, they like to solve these puzzles because it's they're fun puzzles to solve inside the crypto industry. Is this a reflection of what you got in here for? It
2: absolutely does. And I do think that like, you know, that that a big part of this is like, the more I've been here, the more opportunity that I've seen to find something really impactful to do in this space. And, and I think I, I didn't appreciate all of that when I was sort of like first looking at it a long time ago, but I, I, I think it's huge.
1: There's this common trope in crypto where you like you come for the money and you stay for the tech. Is that kind of the trajectory that you've seen yourself on? It's like, oh, first there was arbitrage, then I found discovered I could build this business. But then you just recently alluded to there's more and more use cases that you can see crypto helping create more and more real-world impact. Is this kind of the trajectory that you've seen yourself on?
2: Yeah, I think that sounds about right.
1: What are those use cases? What are those like high-impact things that have really captivated your attention?
2: Yeah, so I think one piece of this is like, Every time that we pay for something in the states, you know we're sort of like by default bleeding something like three percent to various fees along the way, which is a lot to be paying. That that survey is one piece of this. You know, a second piece of this is whenever we send money overseas, and we're losing optimistically five percent, sometimes twenty percent on on spreads there. That's you know horribly inefficient and. And, and you know, a lot of what's going on is like, you know, how can you, how how does a payment work right now? Like, if, if if you know, one person wants to pay another, what does that mean? What's it entail? And I think part of the answer here is like, well, that payment only works if there are uh, two people who both respect the same payment method, right? Like, they both agree on what it means for that payment to happen. But in order for that to happen, what what you have to have you, you have to have um, a situation where, like, there's some payment method if you're talking overseas, which is, well, it's probably not run by a country because it's cross border. It's probably not run by a company. I don't think we're end up with like one company having sort of the propi- proprietary payment method for the whole world. You need a third option. And I think blockchain is one of the first times that we've found I- I- another way to do you know, to, to have ledger, right? To, to have some ledger that you reconcile between two parties. And so I, I think that's that's super compelling. I think that when we, do, so there's payments internationally, there's payments domestically. Um, I think you look at holding assets, especially, I mean, Ukraine right now, I think is a great example of this, right? Like right now there's huge amounts of cryptocurrency-based donations going to Ukraine because how else are you going to get funds there easily? And And I think if you're in Ukraine, right, a lot of people are thinking hard about like, what should they be storing their assets in? Where, you know, where do they feel confident that it's going to be stable? And, and so I think like, that's another side of this. And, and and so I think all of those are like, various reasons that like, that that we're starting to see more and more usage of it. And I think those are those are just some of you know, that's just sort of the tip of it. And I think you can just sort of keep going here and keep finding like, more and more reasons why Existing payment messages don't work in a lot of cases. And crypto presents a really compelling you know, alternative to that.
0: How much um, does decentralization matter in all of that SBF? Do you think decentralization is overrated or underrated in the crypto community? I think that's a good question.
2: So I guess I'll say here, here's a vision for decentralization, which I feel like moderately compelled by. Um, as like, you know, my current best guess for the way to do it which is basically that you have like a bunch of centralized islands, you know, whether they're centralized exchanges, whether whatever they are, which are then connected to each other by decentralized rails, right? And so you have like, and and that's sort of like in some sense what we have right now, right? Where there's like, there are all these exchanges and each one of them is centralized, but you can withdraw your assets from them to your own self-custody wallet or to another exchange, your account at another exchange, you can decentralize blockchain rails my guess is that like that's roughly how we're going to see things building out. And and it means that you can have the efficiency of a centralized entity performing some operation, but the exit strategy of being able to go to a decentralized platform or to, to self-custity and a native language that each of these platforms can all talk with each other in order to communicate more and send assets between each other. And that if you're building a new platform, you can do that with as well. Now, that's obviously ignoring DeFi, which is a more fully decentralized vision of, of you know, a financial ecosystem. And I think that can work for some things. I think that when you look at things that are like not incredibly like computationally intensive, I think that DeFi makes a, a ton of sense. I think there are some balance on it, right? You're looking at like a few hundred milliseconds of latency at the minimum. You know, you're looking at some costs. You're going to be massively duplicating server costs effectively for all of the validators. And so for like, you know, things where compute or throughput or something like that is the current biggest bottleneck. It's not a great fit. But for things for which that's not much of a bottleneck, I think you can, can start to build them fully decentralized.
1: Sam, yeah, the concept of getting all of humans onto the same ledger is definitely something that I resonate with. And as we're looking back to FTX and also the future of FTX, how does FTX fit into that model where we have international transfers, just leaking value left and right. We have domestic transfers, uh, leaking value left and right. And then even our current state of just like, Commodities markets and equities markets could definitely use a glow up, if you will. Uh, So with FTX, what does FTX look like in five to 10 years? What does FTX want to be when it grows up? And how will it help kind of solve some of the problems that you recently listed off?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think we see FTX as one of those centralized islands, right? It's, It's not a decentralized entity, but it interfaces with a lot of them. And I think what we see it as is it's a venue where you can transact, you know, where you can trade. And and where you can send both fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies in and out easily, Uh, and and you know I think ultimately seeing it potentially as really a full stack financial experience for you know for for people where they can access all of the things that they want to access, where they can access you know stocks, crypto investing, trading, deposits, withdrawals of crypto and fiat, you know direct deposits, uh, card payments, and and everything else. But that's also natively integrated into a lot of blockchain rails, and so anything that you want to do in DeFi in, in in the rest of the crypto ecosystem, you can easily get you know funds from FTX to there. You can do swaps that you need to do on FTX in order to get the right assets, and, and that's like my sort of like sense for for where you know high level it, it, it's going. I think it's sort of a combination of like exchange, you know, financial exchange, and financial product, and and especially like consumer mobile app.
0: The, this centralized island that you're talking about, Sam, is this most disruptive, do you think, to the big banks of the world? Like, you know, the brokerages of the world, the Robin Hoods, maybe, or like the, even the Goldman Sachs, for instance? Or is it more of a tech company? Is it more disruptive long term to like the metas of the world and the Twitters? It's an interesting place I think these exchanges are in because like, maybe it's one, maybe it's the other, maybe it's both. What do you think FTX is really disrupting here? It's
2: a good question, and I think like part of the question is like, well, what mobile neo natively digital neo bank do you do a hundred percent of your finances through today? Yeah, the answer is none. none right? Like, yeah, no one does. I've like basically never met anyone who does. I think that's a little weird, frankly. There are places where we do see that, right? Like, there are countries where you you see mobile apps being the primary way that people are transacting, storing their finances. You know, the U.S. is certainly not one of them. And so I think to your question of, like, who is that disrupting, I think there's sort of a hole there, right? Like, I don't think anyone has quite built that product. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people that might be sort of probabilistically disrupting. But I don't know that anyone is quite exactly in that corner right now. You know, putting that aside for a second, like, I I, I think that there's a disintermediation part of this, which is important as well, right? Which is basically... When you, and maybe one way to think about this is like, if you want to buy Robin, if you want to buy Apple stock on Robinhood, right? What, what's that process look like? Sort of like market structure wise. It's messy. It, it, I mean, you're going through, you know, mobile app, PFAS firm, ATS, PFAS firm, clearing firm, custody firm, exchange. And then that whole thing duplicated on the other side. Like our traditional financial ecosystem is heavily intermediated for everyone, except for like HFT firms that are going direct to exchanges. And that's a big difference as well versus, I mean, FTX, but also just more generally the crypto ecosystem, where it's sort of the ethos is everyone has direct access. The exchange, they have direct access to the product. And think it removes intermediaries that are just charging fees and and removing information.
1: It seems like after you layer on a lot of these uh, products that FTX seems to have built and perhaps has aspirations to build, it kind of seems that FTX just turns into like this financial superstructure, where we have so many different financial sectors of the world. We have banking, we have exchanges, uh, we have commodity like risk management tools. And it seems like FTX is getting a little bit in getting their fingers into all of them, including NFTs, too. Is kind of the concept just to, combine as many financial products under the same umbrella as possible. And just like, there's always the joke that even like Starbucks is becoming a bank, right? Where they do their gift cards. Basically they have like a hundred, a billion dollars in deposits. And the meme is that everything ultimately converges to a bank. Well, a bank ultimately converges to a brokerage and it goes from there and everything kind of just converges upon this one central superstructure. And I think FTX is just going there even faster by leveraging crypto rails in the background, which is what crypto really enables. Is that kind of like the long term goal of FTX, just to be this
2: one product to serve them all? I think there's definitely a piece of that, and I think that there's a few important addendums to that. One is doing that, but putting things on blockchain rails as much as possible, and being able to leverage the infrastructure that cryptocurrency and, and, and the digital asset space have. And so I think that you know you look at at sort of the a lot of the things that 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 blockchains have enabled crypto exchanges to do, and trying to make that. A more general structure that's definitely one of the angles here, and something I think long term we're, we're super excited for.
0: So, uh, want to talk about some of the other sectors that you know you bump up against in crypto when you have sort of a you know centralized island of the type you've described FTX as. And you know, the first contrast point is FTX and DeFi compare and contrast, so like friends or competitors. Is FTX a friend of DeFi or does it see DeFi as kind of a a competitor that's maybe out to eat its lunch? What's your take? I think we think we're a friend of DeFi.
2: I think maybe DeFi thinks they're a competitor to us, Uh, but but I I certainly think of of, of us as friends. And, And I think a lot of the reason is like, I think that there are pros and cons and there are reasons to use one and there are reasons to use, you know, another. And... I, I, I think that like you know one piece of this is looking at again things that are computationally intensive not a great fit to be directly on chain. Now they can interface with blockchains, right? Um, but like you're never gonna have the same TPS on a DEX as you as you do on a centralized exchange. You're gonna have the same latency or fees. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of things that do fit natively on chain. I think that like you know DEXs are one thing which I think especially for like the consumer side. Um, you know, where where latency is a lot less important and where throughput's a lot lower, it would be totally reasonable. Another side of this is social media. I think that, like, it could make a ton of sense for social media messages to end up on-chain, decentralized. I think it would go a long way towards sort of, like, breaking into the, the giant sort of moats that each social media network builds because they're not interoperable with any other one. They have all of this captive, you know, all these captive messages and user base. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for making social media interoperable for having users own their messages and permission whatever platforms they want to be able to access it. And I think that using a blockchain for for the underlying social media rails could make a ton of sense from that perspective.
0: Sam, I'm interested in that you said maybe DeFi doesn't always think FTX is its friend. I'm curious, why do you think that? Why is that your perception? And um, you know, why do you think maybe part of the DeFi community believes this?
2: Yeah, totally. So. And to be clear, I think, you know, I don't want to make an absolute statement about all of, of DeFi or anything like that, but I, I definitely think that there is, you know, I, I think that there, there are some people who, uh, you know, see DeFi as eating everything, um, like literally everything. And, and so I think see it as like, well, anything that like does financial services is, is going to be effectively competitive eventually one way or another. And I think that's not so much my guess. I do think that there's like ways in which like there will be competition but I, I think there's also things that are better suited to each part, and that there's a lot of ways that they can just complement each other and interface nicely you know, with each other. But I have to think that the sort of like DeFi will literally the whole world mentality would see anything that is, you know, a centralized island as, as potentially competitive.
0: There's definitely some uh, hardcore decentralization maximalists out there who might take that approach, certainly. I think most in the bankless community, at least, are Somewhat pragmatic about it. It's sort of like we don't want uh, centralized institutions, what we might call banks, gaining too much control of the system, or we sort of revert back to the our prior system. But there's definitely a pragmatism about it because there's a ton of good that centralized islands do for the ecosystem as a whole. But I'm curious about this. So given everything you've said so far, you know, FTX's strategy how you see the world, DeFi being more of a friend than a competitor. What does this mean about FTX's support of particular blockchains? Do you have any preferences, right? So there are some exchanges out there who might say, no, we're neutral, right? May the best one win. There are others, I might say, maybe a Binance, for example, that clearly they favor BNB chain, Binance chain, don't they, for reasons that anyone can guess, obviously. There are some exchanges that haven't really like picked maybe some are yet to launch their own chains side chains i'm not sure does ftx have any preferences it has seemed in the past like ftx might have some preferences i know solana has been a chain that you know ftx has established many partnerships with is that one and if you do have preferences what drives those totally so i think the way i come at this is i don't have
2: native preferences you know we want to support as many chains as we can on on, on ftx and, and i think we do support a number of them, um, including supporting cross-chain through a number of different chains. And, you know, in the end, I think it's a combination of what makes sort of technological sense and where the demand is that that we respond to. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, we don't have opinions on it. And, and obviously, like, I'm seeing everything that's happening there. And, you know, I do end up with, like, thoughts on, you know, what chains make more and less sense. And, and, you know, obviously, that's also going to impact, you know, how we prioritize things. We try and come at it from the beginning, from a, a neutral perspective, though, and, and so I think that like high level, yeah, what are things you know looking for? Basically, basically three three criteria. One is basically how fast and cheap it is. Second is how much demand there is for it, and the third is how decentralized or trustworthy it is. And I think that you know that third thing we think is like not an issue with most chains, but 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 maybe an issue with some. know from those perspectives you know perspective basically thinking like well okay what should we prioritize in terms of onboarding chains to ftx and so, so anyway you know i i think that like there's obviously huge demand for ethereum i mean that that's probably always going to be the case um bitcoin is what it is and and that 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 that's going to be a big piece of it and then there's a ton of different attempts to have i don't know different forms of scaling solutions and, and, and there are lots of different framings of it and lots of different approaches to it between Layer 2s, new Layer 1s, roll-ups, and, and, and everything else. You know, I, I think my sort of thought on a lot of this is like, you know, we'll support a lot of them. We'll see where the demand goes. Make sure that, you know, that we are giving sufficient attention to the, you know, to where, uh, where there seems to be the most demand. You know, I, I think that we've seen that with a few of the other ones. I think Solana has been the most popular by far. So far, and I, I think it makes sense as, as as one of the most, you know, economically efficient chains. I think there's some rollups and layer twos which are like going live soon-ish I, or, or or have recently gone live. I think you can like start with Arbitrum and 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 a few others, and I think we're excited to see what happens with those. I think we've seen like Avalanche, Matic, and, and a few others have real uptake as well, but. Mostly, I think it's too early to, to know for sure. And I, I think that a lot of this is going to depend on the future development of the blockchains and their ecosystems to see which ultimately ends up sort of like with the act, you know, both the best product and the most demands.
1: When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you wanna make sure you're getting the best possible price on your trade. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your trade across all the various liquidity sources in Ethereum and is also operational on Polygon, Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, and other chains. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me in a single, easy-to-use platform and allows me to make limit on-chain orders so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Slingshot is a decentralized trading platform that combines the performance and ease of a centralized exchange with the openness and transparency of DeFi, creating the world's most powerful trading platform. Slingshot aggregates liquidity from all of DeFi in order to find the best price on thousands of crypto assets. Every token on Slingshot comes with a price chart and trade logs to give you insights into the market's activity in real time. Slingshot is available on Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism, saving you from the high gas feeds and low transaction speeds of the Ethereum L1. There are no fees to trade on Slingshot and any positive slippage is given to the users. Trading on Slingshot is a social experience. Chat with others online about trading, markets, and tokens via the platform's built-in global chat box featuring Web3 sign-in. You can even set your chat avatar to your favorite NFT or soon a Slingshot 2099 NFT avatar. Once you bridge your assets to Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, go to app.slingshot.finance to trade and use the chat box to share your trades with others and find other tokens to ape into. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Over 250 projects have already deployed on Arbitrum, and Arbitrum's DeFi and NFT ecosystems are growing rapidly. Arbitrum increases Ethereum speed by orders of magnitude for a fraction of the cost of the average gas fee. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of decentralization and security. If you're a developer who wants low gas fees and instant transactions for your users, as well as EVM compatibility when developing, visit develop.com to get started building your application on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps or NFT projects building on Arbitrum. Many of your favorite apps are already live, with many more coming over soon. You can find these apps at portal.arbitrum.1, and you can bridge your assets over to Arbitrum using bridge.arbitrum.io in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Turning away from the perspective of FTX and leaning into the perspective of SBF instead, uh, there's a, a tweet that's absolutely famous in the Twitter sphere uh, that you tweeted on January 9th, 2021. And it was in a debate with whoever CoinMamba is. And you tweeted out, I'll buy as much Sol Sol Solana's token as you have right now at $3. Sell me all you want, then go fuck off. And that was at Solana price at $3 of which it's now at $81. So obviously that was a good tweet, not to mention coming down off of the high $250 at the peak of the SOL price. Sam, what gave you the conviction to send this tweet? Because it was one of those things where you had to have had conviction to send it and you have been proven absolutely right. What were the indications? What were the signs that you knew that this was going to be a good trade?
2: You know, obviously I don't know anything for sure. And I was like, certainly going out there on a limb a little bit, but basically I I think like looking at where it was back then, you know, market cap wise, you know, it was, it was, it was around a billion dollars or so. I thought that, you know, of the chains at the time it had sort of like clearly the most compelling vision for how it was going to, to scale, you know, thought that, that it had like a real chance of becoming one of the top chains. and you know, I think, but like, how big would it get if it got there? I think the answer is like, you know, a hundred X, right. was like a real possibility. And I thought the odds were like way above 1% of that. And so, you know, I think putting all those together, it just sort of seemed like, look, like this is, this is an insanely low price for what I think is one of the strongest technical teams in the ecosystem. And, you know, at that price, yeah, you just buy. I don't know as much as there is.
1: Were you surprised that the price went from $3 to ultimately $250? Like, at what point were you like, oh my God, this exceeded my expectations?
2: It definitely happened a lot faster than I thought it would. And, you know, I think it was sort of like a, a, a an optimistic case that ended up being realized and ended up being realized shockingly quickly. Um, I don't think it was like out of the realm of possibility, but I think it was, it was definitely a lot faster than I was sort of expecting. And, you know, I, I, I think like, I don't know exactly why why it happened that fast. I was, uh, it definitely outperformed my expectations.
0: Are there any other um, changes you feel similarly about today (laughs) now, Sam? I mean, I think like people are curious because it still seems like it's the early stages of what we might call kind of the execution layer of these blockchains and their new competitors that are entering the ring. You mentioned a few like Avalanche and Matic, and there's also layer twos, which haven't yet seen their season, anything you're particularly bullish on from your vantage point on alternative chain front.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think those are a lot of the chains that I want to be looking at and doing a deeper dive into. And I think that like, I wouldn't be shocked to see one of those come out as a real competitor. Uh, I, I think part of this is looking at what do bridges look like, especially when you look at like, you know, Starkware and Arbitrum and others that are sort of like explicitly meant to be viewed as sort of like layers on top of Ethereum. I think this sort of like complicated piece there is always like what happens on that interface. But, you know, if you can get that working in a really great way, I, I think that's a real competitor. And I, I think that would be really interesting. Um, and then, you know, I, I think outside of that, I think like Avalanche is one of the chains that we see is like, you know, they've got a really smart team and, you know, been been grinding away at, at a product, a good product for a while. Um, would not be surprised to see them um, start to play a larger role in the ecosystem. And then wouldn't be surprised to, for there to be a change that, like, we're just not expecting at all come and, and end up playing a big role. I mean, I don't think that, you know, we certainly don't feel like we know everything
0: that's going to be going on. You mentioned bridges a couple of times now, and I'm curious if you think uh central exchange centralized exchanges like FTX play a role in the bridging process. I know FTX recently announced support for Arbitrum, which is awesome, layer two. So withdrawals and, and deposits there. How does FTX see itself as a bridge from Fiat to the more native blockchain ecosystem?
2: Yeah, I mean we absolutely see ourselves as a bridge in that sense. And I think that, you know, basically what that means is building as many Get integrations as we can, as many different currencies as we can that work as well as we can, and then combine that together with as many blockchain integrations as we can so that you can easily convert between euros and, you know, ERC-20 tokens, between pounds and SDL tokens, between dollars and Bitcoin, um, basically being a central repository of liquidity, um, you know, addition to on-ramps and off-ramps so that it's super, super easy for people to just like convert between all of those, uh, without having to worry about. It. So that's that's really what I'm one of the big things that I, I see it as, and that starts to bleed into the sort of payment processor side of this.
0: Let's talk about maybe the second contrast point. So if we've established that FTX sees itself as a friend of DeFi. Are you a friend of the banks? Are you a friend of the Goldman Sachs's of the world? If you're more a competitor, I know earlier we were talking about how you see FTX as maybe occupying some new white space that these institutions don't currently occupy. But you know, the banks are hungry. They're looking to grow and they're looking to gain more market share. Do you think they go down without a fight? And let's talk about that. And then maybe I wanna talk a little bit more about regulatory, but the banks themselves, how does FTX win against them? I mean, I think that
2: there's a big question of what role they want to play in the digital asset ecosystem, and I don't think it's clear yet. Like, I, I don't think that we've seen banks really stake out what their direction is going to be. You know, when we talk to them, this sort of classic thing. Why? Why are they so slow? So <laughs> imagine that, like, what's the biggest company that you've worked at in terms of employee number of employees?
0: Above 1,000, but, you know, 1,200 or so. Very small. <laughs> cool. So, how many
2: employees do you think like Citibank has globally? I'm Googling this right now. Jesus.
0: I'm going to guess 130,000. Oh, God. It's my guess. What do you think, David? Oh, I don't know, but it's a large number
1: and I'm scared of it already. <laughs>
2: 210,000. Oh, my <laughs> God. what do they do? A lot of <laughs> fucking employees, right? right. Well, that's a good question, right? Like imagine like how much you can get done with 12 people. And then you're like, oh, wait, there's like 200,000 it's hard to even imagine what that means. Okay, so that, that's one interesting piece of it. Another thing though is like, imagine that something has to get, not consensus, but like general approval in, in order to happen. You have all these committees of like 15 members each. I mean, there's like tens of thousands of these committees, giant organization, you got 15 people sitting around around a table and they're like, all right, so should we do something in crypto? you know, I don't know, like uh, trade it or give access to trading it or maybe maybe make a fund or bank it or, you know, I don't know, something like that, right? And then someone says, well, what do we think compliance is going to say about this? And I don't know, someone that tells kind of like, yeah, that's a concern. I don't know. And someone else is like, well, do we, do we understand the regulatory structure here? And someone says, I think it's kind of messy. I'm not totally sure. And okay, so, so so you're starting into the meeting and then so like, well, who's gonna take the lead on this project? And someone's like, Well, I can I can try and work on it, but I'm gonna need more clarity from compliance. And someone's also like, Well, yeah. I don't I talked to compliance last week and they weren't they felt nervous. And they didn't know either. And they know and now you're like, Well, of course that committee's not gonna make a decision, right? Like they're like so far away from being able to actually give a green light on something, and everyone is nervous that someone's gonna be nervous that someone is going to decide that there isn't enough clarity for them to feel comfortable moving forward with some piece of this is how this all is going to bottom out in the end, right? Like some, some long chain of nervousness and you know, where does that, where does that that sort of end up? Like I, I think it just ends up in inaction. And and I think that's what happens is is you just get like, there's so many veto points and everyone is nervous. And of course, they're thinking, look, are we going to get a billion dollar fine for this? And someone's like, what are you worried about getting fined for like, I don't know, I want you to convince me we're not going to get fined for this. Can we get clarity from, from the regulatory bodies? And like, well, they're still thinking about what, what the regime looks like in some places. And they're like, oh, so we're not going to get clarity that we're definitely not going to get fined for doing something here. And so it was like, I, I don't know, I don't think so, I don't know. And and, and then she stalls out, you know? And, and so I, I think it's just sort of like a large collection of sort of like issues and concerns like that that just lead in the end to like, to, to, to a mess that can't make progress on, on something like this.
1: It sounds like the only type of organization that works under this like context that you've kind of laid out for us is one that asks for forgiveness, not for permission. And it kind of lends itself to the upstarts of the crypto world
2: rather than the incumbents of the legacy world. I think there's definitely a piece of that. And, you know, the other thing that I'll say is like, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's impossible to get regulatory clarity. It's just hard. You have to put a lot of work. And you have to really understand what's going on deeply and have lots of conversations with regulators. And like that's something that a more nimble organization can do when you look at the larger organizations. like It's not even just about doing that. It's about doing that and then giving comfort 209,999 other employees that you've done that to the extent that they should not have to themselves do that digging again and not have to to duplicate that same extremely long investigation 200,000 times in order to, to be comfortable moving forward. Like that, 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 that's a pretty tall, Thomas.
0: Let's talk about that then, the regulatory side, because I know you've been quite busy on the regulatory front, and I've got a you know number of questions for you. But regulatory could also be a cudgel that banks use on the crypto industry as well. Like somebody might hear what you're saying, Sam, and say, yeah, but like, I understand, but you don't know someone from the banking sector. You don't know my compliance department. And the reason we have compliance is not because we want to, it's because it's all of the government makes us. And it's because all of this, you know, legislation and regulatory cruft has been added over the decades of the financial system's life. So, like, you don't have to abide by those things, Sam. And so it's easy for you to say compliance gets stalled by indecision, but you should be forced under our same compliance and regulatory regimes. And so they might use that as a mechanism, as a choke point for the crypto industry. Talk about the regulatory situation in general, because it feels like the crypto industry is in a long series of battles, right? To establish crypto in our nation states, like in particular talking about maybe the US. Are we winning or are we losing this battle? In the end, does a crypto exchange just get regulated as a bank and have the same sorts of compliance departments causing hundreds of thousands of employees that the old regime had. Talk to us a little bit about the regulatory landscape right now.
2: Yeah. And, and I will say that some of this, right, when you talk about does it get regulated as a bank? Well, there's one part of that sort of like mess comes from that, but, but another part just comes from having a gigantic messy institution that has trouble making sort of decisive calls in general. And so I think it's important to sort of like keep those you know, the distinction between those clear. But, you know, putting that aside for a second, like, it's less about, like, do you become regulated or not? It's more about, like, is there a reasonable path forward and and do you find it and take it? And I think that, like, there's been a lot of cases where, like, where there is, you know, difficulty and where, like, there isn't a clear path forward. I think there are other cases where there is one. And the biggest thing that, that I think that, like, my takeaway has been, and that I found is like, our goal rather than fighting about whether or not we get regulated as, as, as something that we wouldn't want to be regulated as, I think it's like, we have to find a proactive way to get regulated that makes sense, right? We have to find a licensing regime that makes sense, that fits the product, that is appropriate, and that can, that can sort of provide for the you know, customer protections that, that need to be provided for without you know, killing the, the use case in the first place. And, and I think that that is a thing which is doable. I, I, I feel like cautiously optimistic about that, about that being possible and, and about it in practice happening. But it's going to take a lot of work, like a lot of hard work for us to get there. It's, it's not going to be something that's automatic. And, and so I think like that sort of is my core sense of it is the, the longer that you try and say, look, we're just not part of any regulatory system. The consequence of that is going to be you get stuck into a regulatory system you didn't want to get stuck into.
0: Yeah, our, our Andrew Yang's come to the podcast and said, you're either at the table or on the menu. And I think that's what you're saying.
2: Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Like,
0: you know, just
2: saying like, ah, we're, we're, we're going to opt out of being part of a regulatory system. That's not an option. And, and so instead, what, what I think we should be thinking about is like, well, of the realistic options in front of us, which of those seems most reasonable? and likes the best fit? And how do we work within, how do we work to become a part of those in one way or another? And, and I think that's a big thing that we've been focusing on, you know, over the last year or so. And, and, you know, I think we're making pretty good progress on it. I think we have real answers to that question um, that we didn't have um, at the beginning, which I, I'm pretty excited about.
0: Well, Sam, you were recently in front of Congress, I believe, right? Or some congressional panel. What was that experience like? What's that like just being, you know, talking to legislators face to face and them seeing not a shadowy super coder, but like a real human being who wants to engage in a conversation?
2: It was really good and it was really constructive. And I think that is a piece of It's sort of like, you know, being able to say, look, I'm here, like we're real people. We'd like to be productive. We'd like to have a reasonable conversation about what the right pathways forward are for the industry. You know, this isn't something where, like, you're never going to have any insight into what's going on. Being there to educate, being there to answer questions, and being there to try and collaboratively work on, like, what's the real answer here, right? Like, what is something that solves for the main concerns that regulators have and have to have and that lawmakers have to have in order to protect consumers in order to, to protect our financial ecosystem, and I think that there are real answers to a lot of that. And I think that lawmakers are really, really appreciative of, you know, seeing straightforward, like, hey, here's a thing we could do that I think would help, you know, and I think one example is that are like audits for stable coins, right? Like everyone was in favor of it. And I, and, and I think that for all of the sort of like, you know, all the worry and all of the sort of back and forth and 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 the sort of saber rattling on the worries of stable coins. And, and I think, you know, some amount of perceived lack of, interest from some stable coins in sort of responding to that, just having like, here's the thing we can do that will like address your core problem. Let's do it. I think reframes the conversation a lot away from being a debate between crypto and regulators and and more towards being like, how can we allow crypto and regulators to work constructively with each other?
0: We certainly are observing all the work that you're doing on the regulatory front and you know, cheering it on and you know, fantastic and hope Thank if you bring the same level of execution that you brought to FTX for the last three years, we're gonna be in a pretty good place three years from now. And that's certainly my hope. That's the hope. Okay, I wanna address maybe another concern. When somebody hears this who's Uh, skewing more towards the decentralization maximalist or mostimalist side of things, which I gotta confess is probably myself, probably David, probably many members of the bankless community. What we're most worried about, Sam, is that an entity or a set of entities like FTX, Coinbase, Binance, what if they become the new banks? What if they become the new Goldman Sachs of the world? Okay, and then what we've done is this process, a multi-decade process of replacing the old boss for the new boss. And we still don't have like the self-sovereign decentralized financial system that we've wanted and things consolidate and pretty soon you're back to paying like 3% payment fees again, and governments all over the world being able to inflate your money supply. That's what we're worried about. Do you think that there's any merit in that worry or how would you respond to that concern? I don't think it's a
2: crazy worry. I I totally see where it's coming from. And I think it's absolutely something that, you know, we have to watch out for as a community is that we are actually creating something more decentralized and, and more open. I think that one big piece of this is when you have your finance, and I think one thing that makes me optimistic there is, you know, when you have your finances with a traditional financial institution, you don't have any control over those. They're, they're basically stuck there. And, and I think one of the big goals that I see here for the, for the crypto ecosystem is to build a system where, yes, you do have decentralized islands, but where you really are free to move between them, where you really are free to decide you know what, that wasn't the right one for me. I'm going to move my assets to another one. And you can just do that with the click of a button that you can do it to your own. And that it that they sort of like startup costs for building a new one is not prohibitively high, you know, for becoming a new player in the space that you don't have these gigantic centralized modes. And I think a big part of ensuring that is making sure that it's not, you know, we're not in a position where like, you know, in order to be able to participate at all, in the the crypto ecosystem you know that you have to get acceptance from the existing players right like and i think we are sort of in that position right now with a lot of traditional finance where if you want to become a part of the system right if you want to what you need you need to get accepted by the banks for 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 banking um you know if you want to be uh an exchange you need brokers to connect you with you if you want to be a broker you need the exchanges you need the PFOP firms to connect with you and there's this gigantic chain of like, breaking into this is very difficult. And even once you do, it's very hard for people to switch to using your service if they were previously using a different one. I would love to you know, see a system where at the very least, it's people not only have choice, but have the actual practical ability to change where they are, to move where they are, and for new entrants to, to be able to get into this space and, and, and have a, a real stake and impact there. And I think we should make sure as regulation sort of rolls out here that it allows for that and that it doesn't create impenetrable moots or penetrable in theory, but it, but not in practice moats
1: Well, the ability for users to permissionlessly and freely exit from systems, I think it's going to become increasingly important in these 2020 decades. And I think that is how crypto will ultimately win the hearts and minds of its users, of the people, but also there's the battle of hearts and minds of just everyone else, Uh, which brings us to uh, a topic that I wanted to bring up for a while, which is the FTX Super Bowl ad, which I think did a fantastic job of like just having a major, major PR win for the entire crypto community, because Imagine, for those that haven't watched the ad, you're going to have to go watch it on YouTube, but it's basically a series of inventions being made. The wheel, the light bulb, indoor plumbing, and there's always this old, balding, gray-haired incumbent individual who's always like, no, that's never going to work. And I just would love to be a fly on the wall of so many households in America and the world who have the kids of the family being all gung-ho about crypto and NFTs and then the parents being like, no, it's just a scam and having them watch the ad together as a family. I think that's did a really good job of just putting crypto in a really positive light on perhaps the biggest stage that we have every single year, which is the Super Bowl. And so Sam, I'm wondering if you could just tell the listeners a little bit of the story of how that ad came to be, Uh, like who produced it, where did the idea come from? Just tell us a little bit of the backstory of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of it and super appreciative that, that, you know, everyone who helped put it together. Um, It it originally came, and basically we, you decided that we wanted to, at least hopefully, probably, do do a super bowl ad that, that we at least want to seriously consider doing one. You know, we we sort of started brainstorming ads. We didn't like immediately come up with anything we loved. And we reached out to some agencies. Many of them came back with kind of mediocre shit. You know, I I guess there's like one thing, you know, like, you bring, uh, one of the first sort of this wasn't for a super bowl ad, but one of the first things we were presented was like sort of graphic of like Trevor Lawrence like holding a football thing, like FTX, the cheapest way to buy crypto. And it's kind of like, it's okay. I mean, it's not like I'm not offended by it, but like, I feel like if you told our graphic designer, I was like, hey, you got like 24 hours, you can like make it a poster? That's like roughly what they would have come back with, you know? Like, and so it just sort of felt like, all right, that, 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 that not seem super exciting or, or, or impressive. Like, that's, you know, not, not sold on that one. And, you know, basically went back to a bunch of them and said, hey, can you like, you know, do a better job maybe? Like, I would like a great job, you know? Like, we'd love to see a great ad if we could. I think there are some extensions like, all right, yeah, we can do that. I mean, query why it didn't happen at the beginning, but okay, whatever. I don't know, came back with some more and, and eventually one of them came back to us with the, you know, with with the Larry David idea. And and as soon as we saw it, we're like, yeah, that that's awesome. That's the one. And the fact that that he was really excited to do it was an important part of this for us. It's like you can tell when someone's excited and whether or not. And it just would not have been a great it wouldn't have been a great ad if he wasn't excited for it.
1: Wait, so the ad agency came back and said, hey, here's this pitch for an ad. Larry, we've already talked to Larry David and Larry David's on board. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a good ad agency.
0: <laughs> does Larry David hold crypto? Is he like, uh, is he into the scene here? Not that I know of. Uh, I mean, he obviously, you know, he would be the
2: expert in the end on this, but I, I don't I don't know him to hold crypto. I, I suspect he does not, uh, which is, is also sort of an interesting part of this. So this is not like... It wasn't that he came back and said, like, oh, I would just love to do a crypto ad. Like, I have mean, mm. that that's all I ever wanted. You know, I, I think it much more was like, I do this ad in particular. And thinking like, this is a really cool ad.
1: Larry David was perfectly cast yeah. for that he ad. Was, like, he was, he role, The role of just saying no is just like so perfect for him.
2: He's a perfect fit for it, you know? Yeah. And, and the nice thing is that put him in a position where he, like, he didn't have to be endorsing crypto. For, we didn't want him to be endorsing crypto for that. That's right. the whole point. Right? right? Like and, and I think she felt like yeah, that you know, that, that that sounds like me, you know? I'm the guy saying no to that, whether or not I'm sure it's really not the right thing to do.
1: So uh were you watching the Super Bowl? I I was actually at the Super Bowl.
2: Oh, you're at the Super Bowl. Okay. There, so you yeah. were not seeing the ads. Unfortunately, no. I, I saw them afterwards, you know, on YouTube and stuff, but
0: Well, but fortunately you're at the Super Bowl, so <laughs> that, that's even better. I
2: made up for yeah. it. Yeah. In the end, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. So uh, what were your thoughts on the Coinbase ad? I think it was really trying to accomplish a very different thing than what our ad was. Oh, certainly. And, and I think that, like, I mean, there are a lot of ways of seeing that, but it, but I think one of them is, like, if you look at, like, what was the impact of those ads? Looking at sort of, like, between before and after the ads, I think that, like, Coinbase had a massive, massive jump in, like, the ranking of the App Store. Like, they just had a fuck ton of signups that day. And I think that was, was an incredibly effective ad for getting people to sign up for Coinbase. And, you know, good for them. That's um, a reasonable thing for them to be focusing on. Some might say more than just a reasonable thing. It wasn't what our primary focus was. Like our primary focus, rather than trying to get people to sign up for the platform, you know, our primary focus was how do we spread who we are and who the industry is as a brand in a way which is going to stick with people. And, and so from that perspective, you know, the flip side is they got massively more registrations than we did, but we got, um, you know, our Twitter, FTX officials' Twitter following like doubled, or I think grew by 50% over the course of that ad, and Coinbase is basically didn't budge. And so they, they just had like totally different ma- impact on those two metrics. And I, I think that actually does a pretty decent job of summarizing like what the difference was between their, their aims. And I think they are both good execution for what they were going for, but I think we we're aiming for very different things than Coinbase was.
0: I do think there's something to be said for um, the narrative public good of crypto that you yeah. just contributed towards with that ad. And, you know, I think people in crypto are appreciative of it. I've, I send it to family members and such, and we've talked about it a couple of times on Bankless already. But, you know, this Super Bowl ad is kind of just the start of, I feel like this renewed effort or this, you know, major push in 2021 of FTX breaking into mainstream, In ways i didn't anticipate crypto would break into last year which is like a tom brady endorsement like how did we do that and how did you guys do that you bought up the naming rights to the ftx arena so this is where the miami heat reside i believe you took it from american airlines so bye bye airlines hello crypto industry Um, you've also more recently i think in the last week or two just hired a head of luxury brands Like there's now someone who works as a luxury brand type ambassador at ftx which is interesting this almost makes me think of like it's a little apple-esque of you to go and do that but all of this feels like it's a breakout of the finance geek culture that crypto has sort of been in a little bit and breaking into mainstream what's the unified approach to all of this is this a strategy of some sort
2: yeah i mean i think the way you put it is pretty reasonable which is like look as this becomes more mainstream I think that there's going to be a lot of areas of intersection between crypto and and culture and the rest of the world. I don't think we know what all of those are going to be right now. Like we're still making these up as we go. And I think the world still is. And so a lot of this, frankly, is, you know, we don't know where things are going, but wherever it is, we want to be there. We want to be ready and we want to start to build those bridges before they're necessary. And so I think that's an important piece of, of what we're aiming for here you know, I would be surprised if there wasn't significant intersection between crypto and fashion. And I think that's a lot of the reason that, that you know, that was an area that we wanted to get, start to, to to put a footprint down in, even though I don't know what that is going to actually look like in the end.
1: We talked about how FTX is kind of leaning into being a financial superstructure, but is it also trying to get into culture
2: too? I think so. and 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 again, I don't want to be too specific about how, because I just don't know. Like, it's very much a, uh, you know, we are, we're making this up as we go. The whole world is, but, but I I think that it is like, there's going to be something there. I think NFTs are probably the most obvious play. I think that we want FTX to be a part of, of that culture. And I think we want the crypto industry to be a part of that culture as well. And I I think that like, you know, to the extent that we can start to build those bridges now, um, I think that that can do a lot of good because it, it gives us more time for to prepare, it gives the industry more time to prepare, to start building great products, having great ideation before having to go on, on the center stage. And it's always shitty when you, you sort of have to like, you know, wing it for, you you know, when, uh, when, when the whole world is watching,
0: Sam, I'm curious about NFTs. I know you guys launched an NFT platform not too long ago. Uh, Do you own any NFTs yourself? Are you personally excited about it?
2: I don't generally personally invest myself. I think it's all, all through like, you know, companies. And the other thing that I will say is I am completely non-visual as a person. I don't know. I was born without that gene or something. And and so, you know, from my perspective, like I don't personally um, think that I am the target audience for many of these NFTs. That doesn't mean they're not cool. It just means like they aren't built for me um, or, or maybe I'm not built for them. You know, I think I, I really like sort of NFTs that have some I- interaction with the outside world. Like whether you're talking about you know, tickets, whether you're talking about songs, whether you're talking about, you know, achievements or something like that, you know, something where I, I feel like it's meaningful that I have this NFT or that the NFT gives me some, some meaning um, or, or represents some meaning or some object or something. Like that Those are the types that I'm personally, I think, like more excited for. But I also acknowledge that I'm wrong on that point. The world has, you know, and markets have you know definitively decided I'm wrong and I'm, I'm comfortable with that.
0: Can we uh, talk a little bit more about something we maybe alluded to at the beginning? It's not only crypto becoming mainstream, but like crypto people are sort of becoming part of mainstream as well. And the story of how quickly you've accrued a significant amount of wealth is like a story that's reverberating outside of crypto circles as well, because you've become one of the wealthiest under 30 individuals ever. And I guess I can't say that now that you are 30 SBF, Happy birthday again. But you've also pledged to donate a significant amount of this wealth to charity. But you're already one of the wealthiest people in history, in that age range, 30 and under, where did all of this wealth come from? So, I mean, we're in crypto and like we understand how quickly these sorts of things can happen. Was this from some of the 2017 type trading that you did? Is it mainly FTX? Tell us about the story of going from like relatively, I don't know what your pre-crypto life was, but more modest amount to something that's now in the tens of billions. Yeah, I mean, the, the the biggest piece of this
2: was, is, is FTX. You know, I, I think that like, it's a lot of this is tied up in how well FTX does as a, as a company, which obviously is also tied up to some extent, uh, how, how the industry does. I think there are a lot of pieces that one of which is like things are scaling in a way that the world hasn't seen things scale before. And and I think that, that you're seeing sort of things grow to an extent that just wasn't, is much more rapid than what people are used to. And and the whole world is speeding up. I think social media is a big piece of this. The rate at which the world can decide on something can move into something new is is a lot faster. You know, obviously it's it's been cool to see and you know really grateful for everyone and everything that helped me get there. You know, I, I think it's been sort of shocking from the outside to see how quickly a lot of this has happened and to see it just sort of like everything snowball and dovetail. I think from the inside it's been a little bit less shocking. I think from the inside, frankly, it feels a little bit more, well, you know, you straightforwardly sort of, like, follow through on what seems like a promising direction and ultimately gets you to where you're going. Like, really does feel, from the inside perspective, more like what's been going on. And it feels less magical and more sort of like, yeah, that, that's what we were hoping was going to happen, you know, glad that it worked out um, and, and glad that we're able to execute on it.
1: Tim, I want to take a peek into the person of SBF. There's a general theme, not amongst everyone, but generally a theme of sometimes people come into crypto and they have a background of like World of Warcraft or Starcraft or like, you know, real-time role-playing games. But then there's also the niche of people that came into crypto because they played poker. Uh, there's a lot of poker players in, in crypto. Do you have any pre-crypto hobbies that just alluded itself to crypto very, very well?
2: You know, I played games. I mean, I've always liked video games. I've always played them a decent amount. And I certainly think that there's some tie in there. You know, I, I, I was a trader, obviously, you know, before this and really enjoyed that. I think that was a really good fit for me as a person as well. And so, you know, that was great too. And then I think the last thing is just on the donation side that, you know, I've always been looking for, you know, how I can have the most positive impact on the world. And I think a lot of that is, you know, flowing through where I can be giving my money to.
0: Can you tell us a bit more, Sam, about um, your giving pledge and what you're planning to give to?
2: Yeah, totally. So you know in the end, I want to uh, give away basically everything that, that I make. And you know that that sort of comes from a, a number of, of angles potentially. You know we're probably going to be giving somewhere between 100 million and a billion this year um, through the FTX Foundation. And you know part of that is animal welfare. part of that is, is global poverty. Um, a big piece says looking at what might really change the long-term vision of the future. I, I think that, like, there are trillions of people who might live, which is a lot of people. It's a lot compared to how many people are alive now. And so a lot of this is thinking about, like, well, what, what could we do today that might actually have long-term impact, that, that might change the lives of the, of the world and, and sort of the, the direction of the rest of, of the world? And a lot of that looks like, what can we do that has sort of reliable impact that sort of you can trace out to a long way from here? And I, I don't think there's, like, a single obvious, easy answer to that. I, I, I think it, it's complicated, but I think that there are things that we can do. I don't think it's hopeless, and I think that like politics is one thing that that probably has like persistent impact. I think that pandemics. I mean, we got lucky that COVID wasn't more deadly than it is. We might not get that lucky next time. We were not prepared for this one. We're not going to be prepared for the next one unless we change something. And you know, I think they might get nastier over time. And and so I think that that's sort of another area where we should really be focusing on on getting prepared
0: sam as we start to wrap this up and it's been a pleasure to have you on i gotta ask about since you're a trader of course and you still live in the world of crypto about the 2022 crypto market so far because it's already felt like a year has gone by and we're only in like early march what is your outlook for crypto in 2022 are the good times over? Is this a bear market? Is this 2018 again? There's talk of a global recession. What do you think? How is this going to shake out? You know, I don't know for sure. We'll see. But I think that it's been,
2: it's been a weird time because on the one hand, we have sort of like potential changes in monetary policy, right, where, where we have like, you know, interest rates potentially starting to come up. And, and I think that that probably is, is bad for crypto prices in the same way that the last few years were good for, for crypto prices. On the other hand, we also have global conflict right? I mean, the sort of like story of, of the year so far has been Russia and Ukraine. And while that, that might be bad for equity markets, I think there's a sense in which it can be good for crypto for, for markets because crypto can play a really important role in, in providing you know, financial access to Ukraine. And I think we've already seen that playing out to some extent so far. And, and so I, I think that there may be a bit of a recalibration there about what correlations people are actually expecting, especially when we see, for instance, commodities diverging from uh, equities, which we've seen so far this year, and which is very different than what we saw the previous year. So I don't think the world knows for sure how this all plays out. And and I've sort of like been taking what we've seen so far with a healthy dose of skepticism.
0: How do you think this plays out? Because you're right, I haven't been in crypto at a time where I've seen things do this, right? You commodities diverging from equities, never seen a decently sized global conflict. It's all a very weird time and unique time. How do you think it plays out? I don't
2: know, but I think there's a compelling argument that, that like crypto should be outperforming here. And, and I sort of would expect it to. I think it still might. And um, and I, I think it might hasten a little bit of the move towards a more digital world.
0: If it is a bear market or the state that we're in right now, what should traders do? Anyone who's kind of seeking alpha in this type of a market, how should they react?
2: I mean, look, I don't, I don't want to give financial advice, but I think what I'd say is, you know, whenever we're in more of a bear market, the single most consistent thing is that like what falls off the hardest are assets where it was never clear why their priced they were and how they were in the first place. the sort of like meme stocks, the super growth assets that aren't backed by like really solid fundamentals. I think those things are, are things that, that, you know, tend to not perform so well in, in bear markets. I, I, I would expect to see some of that here. Um, I think, you know, outside of that, like that doesn't mean I don't want to necessarily say you should sell them. Right. Because like things can recover. Like this isn't necessarily permanent either. But I think that's definitely a pattern that I would expect to see play out. And that I think we already have seen play out to some extent. You know, I, I think beyond that, like, you know, basically looking at like, what are sort of, you know, thinking longer term with, with the positions that you're taking, right? Like not thinking like anything I do, it better be good by like a billion percent by next week or it's a failure. Like that's not the market we're in right now, you know? And, and I think it's kind of sort of a dumb market to be in, frankly. And, and, and there are things to be said for not being in that market. And so I, I think, yeah, just taking a longer-term view is going to be really important for navigating it.
0: Sam, as we maybe close with this question, you you already answered what you think FTX will look like in five years. I'm curious, what's your perspective? Where will crypto be five years from now? If you zoom all the way out, so I don't know for sure,
2: but here's the optimistic take. The optimistic take is that it will be half of finance will be crypto based, and um, you know both sort of like. Native crypto assets, but also other assets will really be tokenized. Um, that social media will be starting to break in there. That, you know, digital universes, metaverses, whatever you want to call them, will be tied together by blockchain rails with NFTs. That everyone will have a crypto-enabled wallet. And that it'll be a global phenomenon. And And I think that's like, that, that's sort of, I think, the optimistic take. And I think there's a real chance of that. But I do think that, that it's dependent on us as an industry playing our cards right. And that, you know, if we if we fuck it up, it it may not happen.
0: That's great to end on. Uh, Hopefully this will all be okay. I'm definitely bullish going into this year, but on a longer term time horizon and bankless listeners, we hope you are as well. SBF, thank you so much for letting us dive into your brain and understand what the future is. We really appreciate it. Of course. Bankless listeners, some action items for you. Number one is we're going to include a link to that Larry David commercial we were mentioning. If you haven't seen it by now, go check it out. It's a ton of fun. Also, secondly, like, subscribe and review this podcast. That is how we get crypto out to the world, the top of the charts. Make sure you do that wherever you're listening to the Bankless podcast. Finally, risks and disclaimers. None of this has been financial advice. It never is on Bankless. Bitcoin, ETH, DeFi, all of these things are risky. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone. We're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.